Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Be reading the first 12 verses. If you are joining us for the first time today, I'm almost, free, uh, I'm almost finished preaching through uh, the Gospel of Luke, just one chapter uh, to go here in this very long book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We recently took a, a couple-month break from the book of Luke and preached on some other things, but we're back in Luke again this morning. And just to remind you where we are here in this book before we read In the last passage we covered here, right at the end of chapter 23, Jesus was finally uh, killed on a cross. He died after a very long, uh, brutal crucifixion. And after his death, uh, his body was then taken down from the cross by a man named Joseph who buried Jesus' body in this cave-like tomb. Uh, and rolled a stone in front of the entrance, and standing off in the distance watching Joseph bury the body of Jesus was a group of female disciples, very faithful followers of Christ. They saw where Jesus was buried, and they left to prepare spices so they could later return to properly anoint the body for burial. And that's where we are now at the start of this chapter here. This is now just a couple of days after Jesus died and was buried, and the women are now returning to the tomb. And according to our preaching schedule here in this church, Jesus has now been in the tomb for 10 weeks. Uh, So it is probably time for us to let Jesus out of the tomb this morning. So let's go ahead and uh, pray. We'll ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we do uh, just look to you now. You are the God of heaven and earth. Uh, Lord God, the Bible says in Colossians that everything was created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. That all of this created world, visible and invisible, was created by Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. We believe these things, Father, and uh, we believe that apart from you, God, apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We have no hope whatsoever But Father, we believe that in Jesus Christ we have a hope that will never end. A hope that will never fade. And Father, we look to you now in the name of Jesus and just ask for your blessing upon this time. Father, I just freely acknowledge that I am a broken and weak man. And apart from Christ Jesus, I can do absolutely nothing. And Father, even though a sermon has been prepared here, it is nothing but five Um, loaves and two fish. And Father, if you leave it in my hands, it will do nothing. So we look to you, Jesus, and ask that you would take this now, you would bless it, you would break it, and you would feed your people. Lord, you say in your word, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So I pray now, Father, you would remove me from the picture and you would enable all of us to hear the voice of Jesus this morning. And Father, we know that the sheep of Jesus will be empowered to follow the voice of Jesus. So we just commit this to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, these women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. You know, I would imagine that most of us at, at one point or another have experienced the death of someone we loved, a family member or a close friend maybe. Uh, I know that several of you here in this room, you've experienced the, the death of loved ones very recently. Most of us um, probably have at some point. And, you know, I think one of the most painful periods when a loved one dies might be the first few days after the burial. You know, the burial itself can be uh, a very difficult, painful time, but, but typically around the burial, around the funeral, there's quite a few people around you, uh, friends and family mourning with you, supporting you, in your grief. And there's also often, I think, a little bit of shock and maybe denial around the death of a loved one. The death just hasn't quite set in yet. And I think the most painful time might be those first few days right after the burial. Friends and family have all gone home. You're, you're suddenly alone, maybe a quiet home, people not around you, no one to grieve with you, weep with you at that time. And that, I believe, is often when the real grief hits, the pain of loss, the darkness that um, can just often feel like it has descended on your soul. And, and you know, that right there is probably what the original disciples of Jesus were experiencing at the start of Luke 24. Uh, they just lost a loved one, a, a dearly loved friend named Jesus, a friend like no other friend to them. He was, he was their leader. He was a friend that they had trusted and followed. He was the friend who had given them a constant hope, a constant joy, a constant peace in their lives. And Jesus was dead. And this was now just a couple days after his burial. 
People have all gone back to their homes. The initial shock and denial is worn off. They know now for sure he is dead. The real grief has now set in. And listen, this man, this was a serious grief for the disciples of Jesus. They, they had not just lost a close friend. They had lost all hope. These disciples believed. They, they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. They had hoped that Jesus was the eternal King of, in God's kingdom, the King God had promised to send. They had hoped that Jesus was the eternal Savior of the world, the one who would somehow save God's people and bring them into this eternal glorious heaven. Jesus was their hope. He was their only hope. They had set all their hopes in one man, Jesus. And Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal King, the Savior, was now dead. And it didn't make any sense to them. They didn't expect Jesus to die. He had spoken about it, but it didn't make sense to them. And now he's dead. These early disciples, man, they, they, they didn't just lose a friend. They, they lost all hope. Every last bit. The death of Jesus was the end of the story for these disciples. There's nowhere else to turn. Where do you go at this point? And the pain and the confusion for them, man, you can only imagine how agonizing, unbearable it must have been for them. But, you know, amazingly, what we find at the beginning of Luke 24 is not the end of the story, but really just the beginning of the story, a brand new chapter in the life of Jesus, this, this glorious and new chapter that would now go on and on for all eternity. You know, Luke describes for us here in this passage the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And man, in typical Luke fashion, he doesn't give us all the details here. Just the details that he feels are most important for us, uh, most important for his reader, Theophilus, whom he wrote this book for. There are three simple parts to this passage. An empty tomb, an angelic announcement, and an apostolic response. First, the the empty tomb. Luke says in verse 1 that these female disciples now returned to the tomb with their spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And Luke tells us down in verse 10 who these women were. He says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women along with them. A fairly large group of women, of female followers of Christ. These were very important women in the life of Jesus. They, they followed Jesus almost from day one. These women followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Even when the male disciples had all fled, the women are standing at the cross. They followed him all the way to the tomb, and they're now the first to return to the tomb to anoint his body. These were precious women in the life of Jesus, these female disciples. And here they are coming to the tomb. Luke says this was the first day of the week here. This is now Sunday morning. Jesus was killed and buried late Friday afternoon. The women who saw him buried, then they went home immediately and prepared the spices late Friday afternoon. 
Uh, They then rested on the Sabbath, which began at sunset on Friday and continued all the way through to sunset on Saturday. And now this is Sunday, early Sunday. They're heading to the tomb. And Luke says this was early dawn on Sunday, or it could be translated as deep dawn, or as one scholar translated it, deep dawn earliness. John 20 says it was still dark at the time. And just pause for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of these women. How unsettling would this have been for these faithful women walking in the dark together towards this tomb, thinking in their minds about entering this tomb of their closest and now dead friend and actually handling his body, touching the blood, the torn flesh, looking into his swollen and bruised face, his body now stiff from the rigor mortis. You know, it's eerie enough for me to walk through a graveyard at night. I've done it a couple times and I don't like doing it. Walking past all of these gravestones, knowing there are all these dead bodies just under the surface. But these women here were actually planting to enter a tomb in the dark, handle the dead body of their closest friend. And this was most likely an incredibly emotional scene here, I'm sure. These women grieving deeply, their hopes absolutely crushed this pit of despair in their hearts. Kent Hughes says that these women were depressed, exhausted, mourning, and with no hope whatsoever, a dark sackcloth covering their souls. But when these women here actually arrive at the tomb, they don't find things as they expect. You look at verse 2 again. They, they found the stone, a massive stone, rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They found something they didn't expect to find. This massive stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. And they found something. They didn't find something they did expect to find. They didn't find the body. Gone. Nowhere to be found. And these women, man, they have no idea what just happened here. They have no idea what just happened to the body of Jesus. John 20 says that these women thought someone had stolen the body. Could you imagine how freaky that would have been to be there in the dark, the tomb open, this huge stone rolled aside. There may have been guards laying on the ground. Matthew 28 says an angel had descended, rolled the stone away, and the guards there guarding the tomb were so scared they became as dead men. Dead men. Rather human Humorous when you think about it. The guards were there to guard a dead man, and now they are like dead men, and the dead man is nowhere to be found. And these women walk up on this scene, the stone rolled away, maybe guards strewn all over the ground. And they go in, and there's no body, and they instantly think somebody stole the body. Maybe they're still in the area, whoever stole the body. It would have been an incredibly eerie scene 
for these women. And Luke says in verse 4 that these women are now perplexed. And man, I think that English word perplexed might be a little bit of an understatement here. Perplexed sounds like, hmm, there's no body. What could happen to the body? I think it was more than that. The Greek word, the Greek word for perplexed there refers to a high state of confusion and anxiety. A confused state of mind to be at a loss, uncertain, in doubt, bewildered. These women were in a high state of confusion, a high state of anxiety. They were also probably incredibly scared. No earthly idea what just happened here at the tomb and what just happened to the body of the one they loved. Man, when you stop and back up and begin to think about these women disciples here around the tomb, you can begin to see some things about these women. They're clearly very faithful disciples following Jesus from day one all the way to the cross and now here at the tomb. They're, they're clearly very loving disciples. I mean, you don't see any of the other men there ready to carry out this very tender and compassionate act of handling and anointing his his dead body. They were clearly very loving disciples. But here's the thing about these women. When, When these women here arrive at this tomb, these women are not full of faith. Now they are genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clear from their actions. But they are not operating out of a heart of faith right here. They're operating out of hearts full of doubt and unbelief. Not not a deep-seated trust in Jesus and His words here, but a deep-seated lack of trust in Jesus and His words These women here are are operating in unbelief because here's the thing. On multiple occasions earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus told his disciples very, very clearly that he would one day be killed and buried, but on the third day rise again from the dead. Luke 9.21, Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 18 31 Jesus said the son of man will be delivered over to the Gentiles be mocked shamefully treated spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Jesus told his disciples multiple times that he would be killed that he would be buried and on the third day he would rise again from the dead, and here's the thing, this is the third day. But these women here didn't come to the tomb looking for a living Jesus. They came to the tomb looking for a dead Jesus. They've come to the tomb with spices to anoint his dead body. And when they don't find his dead body, they don't instantly think, resurrection, he's risen just like he said. No, they instantly think, robbery, somebody stole his dead body. They're operating in unbelief. 
Jesus spoke very clear words to his disciples. I'm sure these women had either heard them directly or they knew about his words, and yet they just did not or could not believe his words. Unbelief, and here's the thing, unbelief is a very serious sin in the eyes of God. Do you realize that Jesus rebuked his 12 disciples for their unbelief, for their weak faith, more than he rebuked them for any other thing. Jesus was constantly rebuking his disciples for their unbelief, for their weak, weak, weak faith. Unbelief is a sin. Do you realize when, when, when you are operating in unbelief, you are basically calling Jesus Christ a liar? Jesus says something to you, but your heart says, I don't believe you. I don't believe you just told me the truth, Jesus. I believe you might be lying. And disciples today, they also, we also, commit the sin of unbelief. You know, I think, I think most disciples probably have more hidden unbelief in their hearts than they will ever recognize. I think we look at some stories like this, oh, crazy, man. Oh, Jesus constantly rebuking them for their unbelief, and yet we are rooted in unbelief so much of the time. And God is not pleased with our unbelief. You know, Jesus says things to you in his Word and, and really, do you know this whole thing is really the word of Jesus? Because Jesus is God and God wrote this book. So this book is filled with words from Jesus. And Jesus says things to you in his word, but, but you just don't believe them. He gives you promises for, for you to cling to in faith. He, he gives you, gives you uh, commands to, to obey in faith, but you, you, you just don't do it. And on many occasions, it's unbelief in the heart. You, you don't really believe they're true. You don't really believe the promises are true. You don't really believe the commands are true. You don't believe the commands are for your best good. So you don't cling to those things in faith. It's unbelief in our hearts that does it. And it's a serious sin. A sin that Jesus rebuked more than any other sin. A sin that he wants to rebuke in your life, disciple. He wants to rebuke in my life. Unbelief. Hidden in the human heart. Jesus says it. We don't. We just don't believe it. And I think, I think the Lord would say to us here, man, just read it, believe it, and do it. Read it, believe it, and do it. It's one thing to read it. It's one thing to hear it. There are some of you sitting here right now, you call yourself a disciple of Jesus. You have no idea what this book says. You have no idea what this book says. You sit in sermons every other Sunday. Here you are, here you are, here you are, and you still really have no idea what this book says. You're not even hearing the words of Jesus. And that's a scary place to be. 
J.C. Ryle said that a professing Christian who is not hearing the words of Jesus, he is not a Christian. There's no way around it. And one of the reasons J.C. Ryle said, he said, because Jesus is the Word, that's his name. So if Jesus, the Word, lives in your heart, there will be a natural connection between the one who lives in your heart and the book on your table. You will just want to read it and divest it because you know Jesus better when you read this book. And to sit there and say you're a disciple of Jesus and not to know anything about what's in this book, that is evidence that you may not be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts by hearing the words of Jesus, the inspired words of the one and only God, but it doesn't stop there at hearing. No, you must believe those words and do those words. Do Luke as you read through it. Do James as you read through it. Do the Psalms as you read through them. Just read it, believe it, and do it. And man, Jesus would say to us, I think that things will work out so much better for you if that's the way you operate in this life. May God root out our unbelief. These women here were full of unbelief at this point. True disciples, but walking in unbelief. Not looking here for a living Jesus. They're looking for a dead Jesus. And their unbelief will now be rebuked. Gently, however, by two angels. And man, that's the kindness of God when we walk in unbelief. He would come gently to us and and rebuke us. And some of us, it's not going to be that gentle because he's told you a hundred times. So he'll come a little more directly, but he comes to these women very gently through these two angels. So that's the empty tomb. The second thing we see here is this angelic announcement. If you look at verse 4 again. While these women were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? (laughs) Why do you seek the living among the dead? (laughs) <laughs> I love it, man. And you, you know, Luke's saying they were frightened. <laughs> How bad they were. Man, have you ever been frightened in your life where all of a sudden you see something you didn't expect or hear something you didn't expect and the fear just jumps up in your heart? Now, I'm going to humble myself here and uh, tell you of a time recently when uh, I was uh, startled and fear sparked in my heart. A couple weeks ago, I was supposed to meet my DNA group, the, the men in my life group at this park in Cottage Grove, the Splash Pad Park, if you know about that park in Cottage Grove. I got there early, you know, good disciples get there early, right? I'm there early, I'm, I'm reading the Word, man, and then I think, well, and I'm kind of tucked in all these trees, a beautiful spot, couldn't be a better spot, tucked in these trees, and I thought, well, I'll just get up and pray by the pond. So stood up, standing right by the pond, and right when I started to pray, all of a sudden this bird flies right by my head, and I kind of ducked just thinking it was, you know, this random thing. The bird didn't see me and came around the corner. Whoa, there's a guy there, and 
But the bird then turned right around and came back at me, <laughs> right above my head again, chirping loudly as it whoom, went by and I ducked. And I, I know, you know, it's probably a mama bird. Uh, you or mothers, you know about protecting your kiddos. And this mother bird was coming after me, man. And I have seen Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock's horror movie, The Birds. And all of a sudden, I'm envisioning they're all alone in this grove of trees. These birds, a thousand birds pecking my brains out and uh, very eerie for me. So I very calmly began to walk out of the trees toward my car, which was about 50 yards away across an open field, thinking that the bird would stop. But crazy bird just kept coming at me relentlessly over and over again. And I would like to say that I walked very calmly all the way back to my car. But that would be lying and I might get struck down. (laughs) I was soon jogging very coolly looking around. Hey, how you doing? Jogging. The bird just keeps coming after me. By the time I got back to my car, I was in a dead full-on sprint, waving my arms above my head like a madman. And I dove down behind my car and I fiddled with the thing and I got the door and I jumped in the seat and I slammed the door and I almost had a heart attack. I (laughs) for 10 minutes, my heart's racing. I'm sweating like, oh my word, you got to be kidding me. I didn't know birds did that in Minnesota. The problem was I left my books back on the table. (laughs) So I sat there and I honestly, uh, no lie, I'll just be honest with you. I thought, can I drive my car across the field and get down into that grove of trees? And then I thought, okay, that's probably not good. Be a man about this. So I got out, I walked quietly down into the trees to the table, uh, trying to be quiet, apparently made too much noise because crazy bird came at me again. And I repeated the madman run back to my car. (laughs) And I still didn't have my stuff. (laughs) Oh God. It was terrible. And all these men with their kids playing basketball right there. Ah! Oh, I'm such a man. So I did what any brave man would do. I later asked Carl Swenson to get my stuff when he arrived, and Carl walked down there. Of course, Crazy Bird did nothing to Carl. Instead of there watching him, hey, I think that's because I'm more in the spirit than Carl, and Satan didn't want to provoke the bird to get Carl. Just me. Anyway, that's my freaky story. And I came back and I told Molly this story. And as I'm telling her, like I told you, she was like, oh my word, how big was the bird? And I said, I said, man, it was like that big. (laughs) And she said something to the effect of, man, you tell the story. It sounds like a pterodactyl. (laughs) But no, in all humility and very sadly, it was a tiny little bird that is in me running for my life. I told another man in my DNA group, and he said, oh, you know, I probably weighed just a couple ounces. Thank you very much, Corey Vowles. I can't believe we let you in as a member. So there it is. And man, these ladies here are terrified. They have just seen something that terrified them, but they have a much better reason to be terrified. They didn't just see some little 
bird. No, listen, again, in their shoes, they're already perplexed. High state of confusion, high state of anxiety, and all of a sudden, two angels in dazzling apparel, Luke says. In the Greek there could also be translated as apparel that flashed or gleamed with light. <laughs> oh my word. You think you're dressed nice this morning. <laughs> you were voted best dressed in high school. Well, good for you. These guys are wearing lightning jeans. And listen, it's still dark out. So they're seriously probably lighting up the area like a couple of glow sticks. And these women are naturally frightened, fall to the ground, and the angels then speak. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Very gentle rebuke from these angels. You women, Jesus told you multiple times that on the third day he would rise from the dead and once again be a living Jesus and you don't find the living among the tombs. Why are you here? Why are you women looking for a dead Jesus? And the two angels then say some of the most important words in human history. You know, there, there have been some, some pretty famous words in human history. Samuel Morse sent the very first telegraph from the U.S. Capitol in Washington to Baltimore to a man named Alfred Vail. Samuel Morse, when he sent the telegraph, was standing in front of all the members of the U.S. Congress at the time. He was testing, he was demonstrating his newly invented telegraph machine in front of them. Sends this message to Alfred Vail, and Samuel Morse and all the members of Congress soon received a telegraph back from Alfred Vail that said, What hath God wrought? Very, very famous words. Neil Armstrong became the first human to step on the moon and famously said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And Arthur Compton, after he discovered atomic energy, he telephoned the chairman of the National Defense Research Committee and in coded language, he very famously said, the Italian navigator has landed in the new world and the natives are friendly, announcing that he had invented atomic energy. Lots of famous words in human history, but listen, none, none are as important as the words these angels now speak to this group of women. Seven simple words. You look at the middle of verse 5 again. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. He has not here, but has risen. Man, those words right there, they altered the entire course of human history. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, a man who claimed to be in his life the Messiah, Eternal king from God, the savior of the world. A man brutally executed and buried dead. No more life 
in him. A a death verified by countless Roman soldiers and bystanders. A a dead man locked away in a cave-like tomb and lying dead in that tomb for three days. No breath, no heartbeat, no brain activity whatsoever. And now seven simple words. He is not here, but has risen. That is a world-changing event. A life-changing event to the nth degree. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, infinitely more important than telegraphs and moonwalks and atomic energy put together. And we'll think in just a second about the importance of the bodily resurrection. So these angels, they tell the women here that Jesus has been raised, and they then remind the women of the many times Jesus said he would rise from the dead. If you look at verse 6, he's not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And all of a sudden, <laughs> this group of women disciples, the penny drops. And they remember the words of Jesus. And I think in that moment, the Holy Spirit moved upon them to remove the unbelief from their heart. And they knew he's not stolen. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. Just as he said. When Jesus says something, (laughs) when he says something here in his word, (laughs) just believe it. Because Jesus never lies. Jesus is God. And God cannot lie. Jesus cannot lie. Everything he says is truth. Read it, believe it, and do it. Listen, if Jesus tells you to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins, then do it. Believe it and do it. If Jesus tells you to follow him and he'll give you eternal life, then believe it and and do it. If Jesus tells you to trust in him in your trials, then believe it and do it. If Jesus tells you to pray and he will answer your prayers, then believe it and do it. Unbelief is a sin. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the words of Jesus. It's just too complicated not to believe. It's just too complicated not to believe. Then you have to wallow in your despair and figure out how you're going to do it yourself. It's too complicated. That's why Jesus said, you've got to become like a little child to enter the kingdom. It's simple. Read it, believe it, and do it. And it'll work out so much better for you. And man, these women, they remember his words and they now believe and they have hope again. Their hope has, you know, it was crushed on the cross when Jesus died. Their hope has now been resurrected in the tomb. The death of Jesus wasn't the end of the story, but just the beginning. The empty tomb, the angelic announcement. And the last thing here is this apostolic response. You look at verse 9. Luke says, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, the 11 disciples, and to all the rest of the disciples. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. 
And they did not believe them. So here they are, these women. (laughs) After seeing this, after hearing this, and they run off now to tell the apostles. There's only 11 of them now after the departure of Judas. And they run off to tell all of the other disciples. Maybe the 120 other disciples who are later mentioned in Acts chapter 1. They run off to tell probably a large group of disciples here. And they run off, I'm sure, with great joy in their hearts to tell them what they just seen, what they had just heard. St. Augustine said that these women now become the first preachers of the resurrection, running off to tell others that Jesus has risen. The same thing Jesus wants us to proclaim to others. Jesus is risen. So here they go off to tell them But Luke says that their words seem to the other disciples to be an idle tale. They thought the women were crazy. You know the Greek term for idle tale there? It was a term used in medical settings to describe the delirious talk of a sick person. That's the delirious talk of a sick person. You're telling us Jesus is risen. You women are delirious, sick in the head, ridiculous, pure nonsense. Or you put it in our language, your lights are on but nobody's home. (laughs) Your elevator doesn't go to the top floor. Your driveway doesn't reach the road. You're a few few cards short of a deck. You're a few fries short of a Happy Meal. You want me to go on? You're one twist short of a slinky. You're one fruit loop short of a bowl. They thought the women were crazy. And once again, we see disciples operating in unbelief. Jesus told them, especially the 11 apostles, directly that he would, he would be killed, buried, and on the third day, rise again. Here it is, the third day, and they are not looking for a living Jesus. They are still mourning a dead Jesus. And those who say that Jesus has risen, they call them delirious. They're still walking in unbelief here. But one of the original apostles here, when he hears this news from these women, he is at least hopeful that their words just might be true. If you look at verse 12, Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now think about this, Peter. The last time we've seen Peter in the book of Luke, what was he doing? He was denying Jesus. Right before Jesus was killed, he's in a courtyard, and, and, and Peter is, is accused of being a disciple of Jesus, and three times, Peter denies it vehemently, with cursing even on the last denial, I do not know Jesus. And Luke said, back in Luke 22, on that third, after the third denial, the rooster crowed, and Jesus simply looked at Peter, probably across the courtyard. And Peter left the courtyard and wept. And Jesus was then killed. And Peter now hears these women. He thinks they're delirious. But he hears them say, he is risen. 
And I don't think Peter believes it yet. But I do think that at the very least, Peter is hopeful. And he runs to the tomb to see for himself. And he looks in, he sees the cloths laying there. And Peter knows, I think, instantly that his body wasn't stolen. What thief would have taken the time to unwrap the body? He knows. And I don't think he knows what happened. But he walks away marveling. Hopeful, I think, that it might be true. And I think Peter probably wanted to go back to Jesus and tell him he loved him. Yes, I denied you. But I do love you. He wanted to see Jesus again. And he was very hopeful. And man, Peter and all the other disciples, they will soon find out for sure that this is true. Later in this chapter, they will see, they will touch the, the, the risen Lord and know for sure that he is risen. And Jesus, man, he will then open their minds later in this chapter and he will, he will show them, according to the Old Testament scriptures, why it was necessary for him to die and rise again. And why was it necessary for Jesus to die and, and then rise again? Why couldn't he just die? Why was it necessary for him to rise? Let me give you just a few quick reasons, just a little bit of the importance of the resurrection. Just a few reasons here why the bodily resurrection of Jesus was one of the most significant world-changing events in human history. I'm going to go through these things really quickly, so I'll put the verses on the screen for you so you can see it and listen. I really want you to think about these things right here. You're going to see a couple things that the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And listen, when you hear these things, you have a choice. You're kind of like the women here in this chapter. You are kind of like this large group of disciples. They heard some things about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they had a choice. Do we believe that or not? And when you hear these things, you have a choice. Do you believe them or not? And I pray God will remove unbelief from our hearts, help us to believe these things so that we might live according to these things. So here we go quickly. According to the Bible, why was the bodily resurrection of Jesus necessary? Why is the resurrection important? Number one, vindication. Vindication. When Jesus rose again from the dead, his bodily resurrection was a vindication. It was proof that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the King, the Savior. Jesus claimed right before this to be the eternal Son of God. And his resurrection was a vindication proof that all of that was true. Look at Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his resurrection from the dead, right here in this passage, Jesus was declared according to the Spirit of holiness, or he was declared by the Holy Spirit. 
to be the Son of God in power. God was vindicating his Son, saying he is who he said he is. Here's 1 Timothy 3.16, another verse along this line of vindication. Jesus, Paul says, was manifested in the flesh, he lived in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. And that phrase there, vindicated by the Spirit, that is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was condemned by men as a fraud, as a fake, as a blasphemer, but in his resurrection, the Holy Spirit raised him up, vindicating him. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. Believe it. Believe it. A second reason the resurrection is important, here it is, justification. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can now be justified or declared innocent by God. Romans 4.25 Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Jesus went to the cross and died. He was delivered up for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins. But in order for us to be forgiven, in order for to be justified, Jesus had to pay the full penalty for our sins. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb in his resurrection, right here, it was proof that Jesus had paid the full penalty for our sins. A prisoner is not released from prison until the crimes committed are paid in full. And when Jesus walked out of his prison, the tomb, it was proof that the penalty for crimes committed were paid in full. Full Because of his resurrection, we can now be justified, declared innocent through repentance and faith. You repent of your sins, you trust in and follow him in faith, you're justified. You are declared innocent by God. Believe that. A third reason why the resurrection is important, power. Power. The Bible says that Christians who do trust in Christ... The Bible says that those Christians, they can now know and experience the power of Christ's resurrection in their own lives right now. This is Philippians 3.8. Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in order that I may know Christ and in order that I may know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And Christians are people who have given up all things, renouncing them in the heart, but in exchange, they gain Christ. They are found in Christ. They begin to know Christ. And Paul says that Christians cannot, they also have, they can know this power of Christ's resurrection in their lives as they share in Christ's sufferings. And that's mind-blowing. The Bible says the same power that raised Christ from the dead now works in you if you are in Christ. The very same power. And you can experience and walk in that resurrection power. I think most Christians do not experience very much of Christ's resurrection power in their lives. 
I think we can experience a lot more of Christ's resurrection power in our lives. And we're going to talk about that resurrection power a little bit in the weeks to come. But that's another reason it's important power in the Christian life. Believe it. And for a fourth reason why the resurrection of Jesus is important, our own resurrection. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb in a body here, every Christian will someday come out of the tomb in a body like Christ's risen, resurrected, glorified body. A real body. Here's Romans 8.1. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit now lives in you. And He will give life to your mortal bodies. And I don't think Paul is just talking about the resurrection there. The Spirit will give power to your mortal body even now in this life. And also when you are resurrected from the dead. Just a couple more verses along the same lines. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That's coming for you, Christian. Philippians 3.20. Here's a Christian. Our citizenship is now in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. A glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Behold, I tell you in a mystery, Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality so because of the resurrection of jesus in bodily form every believer will someday be raised in bodily form believe it And one final reason why the resurrection of Jesus is important. And this, I believe, is the word for sure that God wants to speak to us this morning. I've been asking the Lord all week, where's the living water in this passage for us? Where's the living water in this passage for us? And here it is, I think. Final reason why the resurrection of Jesus is important. Because Jesus is now, once again, a living Jesus. Jesus was at one point a dead Jesus. But Jesus is no longer a dead Jesus. He is a living Jesus now and forevermore. Here it is, Revelation 1.17. Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that we love here in our CRC family, He is not a dead Jesus. 
He is a living Jesus. The Bible says he is living right now at the right hand of God the Father. And even though he is living right now at the right hand of God the Father, the Bible says that he is also somehow with us right now. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. And you know that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same God. So that Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of the living Jesus lives in your heart right now. He lives in us as a local church. And the Jesus who lives in us is with us at all times. He says, Matthew 28, I will be with you always. And this Jesus who is with us is a living Jesus. Man, I think that's so important for us to remember. Because we can, we can say Jesus is living, and yet we can functionally act like Jesus is still dead. And we can do it a million different ways. A million, you can, you can gather around a system of Christian beliefs. You love your system of Christian beliefs. And they could be so good and so right on. But if in that system of Christian beliefs, you are not going repeatedly and regularly to a living Jesus, then your system of Christian beliefs is a broken cistern for you. It will not lead you to living water. Because the living water is not found in a system. It's found in Jesus. You can do that with the Bible. You can know your Bible back to front. You can memorize it. You can know the original languages. But if you're not going through this Bible to the living Jesus and feeding on him and getting to know him better, then I'll tell you what, this Bible has become a broken cistern to you. And it will not be living water for you. Do you realize you can do that with the gospel? Now, we love the gospel here. We love all of the facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So important. But you can get so centered on the facts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that all of a sudden, Jesus is kind of a functionally dead person to you. And you gathered around a bunch of facts, but you're missing the living Jesus. You go through those facts to the living Jesus and feed on that living Jesus. The living, living Jesus, the Holy Spirit in us, is living. And he wants to guide us and direct us and empower us with his Holy Spirit. He wants to give your life groups ideas, things to do. He wants to give you ideas to do with your children. He can help you in the moment. He can help you in your trials. He can help you in your suffering. A living Jesus. And I think this passage reminds us, he's living. Go to him. Go to him every day. Relentlessly. Feed on him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Believe his words. Obey his words. Follow the living Jesus. Father, we thank you for living Jesus. We thank you for living Jesus who was raised up in this passage, who lives now forevermore. Thank you, Father, for a living Jesus. Father, in all that we do, pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. Remove the veil of unbelief from our minds. Help us to see Jesus. And Lord, cause us to fall in love with Jesus. Father, cause us to go to Jesus daily in prayer. 
to go to Jesus throughout the day in the Word, to go to Jesus in our life groups, to go to Jesus in our homes, to go to Jesus relentlessly. Father, help us to do this. Don't let us get distracted and turn things into broken cisterns. Father, let us go again to the person, the living Jesus. Amen.